All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. morning. Open up your Bible, Song of Solomon, chapter 6. Is that right? Yep, chapter 6. I shared with you a few years ago, a few years ago, I shared with you a few weeks ago. Let's start over. Open up your Bibles with me, Song of Solomon, chapter (laughs) 6. Oh, goodness. Uh, I shared with you guys a few weeks ago um, when I was dating my wife, Rianne, that she uh, came up to me and she said, hey, I don't know if this relationship is going to work. I was not probably um, the best boyfriend. I had some deep insecurities. Those came out. And uh, she said to me, I need a few days to really pray about this. I need some time to think about this. And uh, so she said, three days. In those three days, my heart went on a tailspin, a downward spiral, and I became desperate. Not only was I already insecure, but that season of three days felt like an eternity, um, exposed even more insecurities inside of me. And uh, I learned something then, of which I've watched repeated in myself and over and over again and many other people, that insecure people are rooted in fear. Insecure people are rooted in fear, and fearful people do dumb things. Amen? Very dumb things. Now, don't, don't act like you don't know. Insecure people do dumb things. Specifically, number one, insecure people overcompensate. And so in this season of three days, what I wanted to do was pour out my overwhelming love and buy her really expensive gifts and just call her every hour. Um, can I tell you how awesome you are? Can I tell you how sorry I am? Can I please make this right? right? I just wanted to overcompensate. And insecure people overcompensate in multiple ways. But in that season, I realized I want to just pour out, hoping that overcompensation would make it better. Insecure people, number two, self Loathed. I turned inward and I said to myself, I am so stupid. I am so dumb. Why, why could I not be a better man? Why could I not be whatever? Um, and I think you understand this. When you're in uh, an insecure relationship um, and you are not performing, you are not being the man or woman you're supposed to be, self-loathing takes a hold. And then finally, number three, insecure people inevitably pull away. Um, I lost confidence, um, didn't feel like I was worthy, and this is what happens. We overcompensate, we self-loathe, and then we pull away, and this is just a really natural thing. But then, uh, if you don't know, she actually came back and said, we're good, let's get married, it was all good. So I don't know if you knew that happened, but um, then when we got married, all of the insecurity about our relationship, the status of our relationship, went completely away. I've never had to wake up and wonder is my wife going to stay with me? Um, We've thrown down. Any of you ever had really, really good fights with your spouses? Oh, only us? That's good. Liars. We've thrown down. But I've never once wondered, is she going to leave and never come back? I've never once wondered, um, is she going to divorce me? Uh, I've never once wondered, is her love going to stop? Because with covenant came security. And I just want to look at you and give you a little vision for your marriage, that your marriage should be the safest place on the planet for you next to Jesus. That your marriage should be an oasis. It should be life-giving. Even when there is conflict and there is stress, which is inevitable and it is real, When the conflict is over, which should happen quickly, your marriage, the default of your home, should be safe, life-giving oasis. As I say that, 
Many of you are hearkening back to seasons when that was not the case, and some of you are exactly in that season right now. Marriage should be the safest place to fail miserably. Your marriage should be the safest place to have shortcomings, physical, emotional, spiritual. It should be the place where the gospel is declared over your life. I am a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. I am not everything I am supposed to be physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And my wife or my husband, I am with them. And this is secure despite my shortcomings. Marriage should be the safest place that you run when life is incredibly difficult when everything is swirling and there's chaos all around you, your marriage should be the safest place to go to. Now here's what's interesting. We're in the book Song of Solomon. This is a book about love and sex and attraction and romance and covenant and marriage and betrothal. It's this beautiful book where God is showing us his heart for these things. And what we find is that three out of the eight chapters all revolve around one event of conflict. There's the conflict and then there is the tension and then there's the resolution. And three chapters of this entire book take up this one event. It's striking that of all of the scenarios, of all of the fights, of all of the highs and all of the lows that Solomon and his bride experienced, he plucked this story out of their life to put into this song, which is the pinnacle celebration of their love. And this event was pivotal enough that it took three out of the eight chapters. So it's pretty fair to say, whatever this event is, it is pivotal to understanding covenantal marital love, sex, attraction, romance, that you got to get something really special about this um, circumstance. So what happened last week, I got to bring you up to speed, is Song of Solomon, uh, Solomon himself and his bride, they are finally married. A couple weeks ago, we saw their wedding and then their wedding night. And then last week, they had a fight. Here's what happened, in case you don't know. Um, It's nighttime. He's having a long day. Um, The text says his head uh, was, his hair was wet with the dew. He's working outside. And he comes home and she is sound asleep. And he knock, 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 juggles the latch and says, my love, uh, I would like to make love with you. And she wakes up and says, for real? Like, really? I am sound asleep. I just took a shower. I just put on my clothes. Like, this is really what you want to do. So she says words on the outside that communicate rejection. Um, And then the text says something really profound. Um, After she realized that he left and she had hurt him, she said this, my soul failed within me. That there's something that she said, but it was not in line with her heart. And let's give this woman tons of credit. I don't know about you, but I've never been woken up in the middle of the night and been my most clear-headed self. Anybody, right? Um, I wake up and I'm like, whoa, what are you going? You know, like, I mean, just the other day, my wife wakes me up and she's like, apparently this is what she says. She like touches me and I'm like, why, why are you like shaking me, right? And she's like, I'm not shaking you. And I'm like, that's what it feels like. That's how I woke up, you know? And, and she's like, I was literally went in and was gently touching you. Well, it didn't feel like that in the moment, okay? So my point is, who is at their best self when they're woken up like that? I'm telling you, I'm not, and she wasn't. And she, there's what she said and then there's where her heart was actually at. The two were very different places. So he walks away and she freaks out. Insecurity takes over, and she goes to the most negative place she could go. She is afraid he went to the streets to make love or have sex with a prostitute. So she freaks out, 
And she puts on her veil, and she goes out in the middle of the night, and she is running around. Have you seen Solomon, whom my soul loves? And the watchmen find her, and the watchmen think she's likely a prostitute running around. I mean, what kind of woman is running around in the middle of the night shouting for Solomon? Definitely not the dignified queen. And so they end up beating her up. And uh, should they have done this? It's really irrelevant. It's, it's what happened. And the text was describing what happened to the girl. And then news of what had happened with her and Solomon got out. And the story began to spread. And apparently, it made her look a lot worse than she probably intended to look. And it made Solomon look like he got rejected. So the daughters of Jerusalem find out. And the daughters of Jerusalem, they're like these girls. They're a choral group, if you will. And they kind of give you insight into what's going on. And they're a little bit chatty and emotional. And so um, you get the daughters of Jerusalem. And they look at her. And, they're, and they basically say to her, um, we're not going to help you find him. Uh, let me translate. Anybody who treats their husband like that, we don't want anything to do with. And so she goes from the watchman to her friends, and everyone is rejecting her. And, and we get into chapter 6, uh, verse 1, and here's what happens. Um, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? This is the daughters of Jerusalem. And after she shares with them her appreciation, her affection, her love, her admiration for this man, the daughters of Jerusalem change their tone. And they say, O most beautiful among women, where is your beloved gone that we may seek him with you? And so what we find here is that their story starts to churn. And then she has like this epiphany. She's like, I know exactly where he is. Where does a man turn when he is hurt and alone? To his hobbies. And she knows exactly what a man of honor would do. He would run to do something. He would get away. He would be by himself. He would clear his head. For some men, their hobby is TV. I'm not saying that's an admirable one. For some men, when they are hurt and they're wounded, they don't just turn to a hobby, they turn to an addiction, whether it's drinking or pornography. She was afraid he turned to a negative hobby, but he didn't. He actually returned to his love, which was gardening and gathering lilies. Isn't that interesting? Like This is something that Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, this was part of his hobby and one of the things that he loved to do. And then here's what she says in verse two. My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and gather lilies. Now, if you've been reading this book with any attentiveness, um, you're gonna be really tempted to think in chapter six that this is sexual language. And I'm gonna tell you that it's not. This is actually in chapter six. Um, there is almost no sexual language that happens whatsoever. That comes in chapter seven. And so here's what she says. I know exactly where he's at. He went down to the garden to gather lilies. And then she says this in verse three. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Just two things. One is a sweet thing that you just may miss. Um, throughout this book, his pet name for her is Lily. He calls her a lily, and now we know why, because apparently the lily is his favorite flower, it's this beautiful flower, and he calls her a lily among brambles. And so we actually get a little bit of insight here into why this imagery is used throughout the book, but here is what I love about verse three. I want you to notice her total security. The relationship is not in jeopardy in any way, shape, or form. She is 100% convinced that he is in love with her, and she says, I am my beloved's, 
my beloved is mine. I want you to notice what is not going through her head. Will he abuse me like my brothers? So her brothers, we learn throughout this book, um, they were mad at her, they were angry, so they punished her by sending her out to work in the fields, and that stole away the cultural conceptions of her beauty. It made her tan when the cultural conceptions of beauty were fair skin. It made her body basically muscular when the cultural conceptions of beauty was a woman would be soft. What does not go through her head is this, will he punish me like the watchman? What does not go through her head is this. Will he reject me like the daughters of Jerusalem when I don't meet his expectations? I want you to notice all of the thoughts that could go through her head, and here's where she lands. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Total, 100% security. And when a couple fights, you have to know that you know that you know that though we may bicker, though we may be angry, though we may be hurt, though we may be rejected, this covenant, this marriage is 100% stable. And I am looking at men and women and your lives have been surrounded with divorce through close friends of yours. And you have watched couples go through far less than what you have gone through and their whole marriage has been on the rocks. And I'm here to say that a marriage that brings God glory declares we are 100% secure come hell or high water, no matter what happens, because I have committed my life to you and I am gonna give you and my children and my grandchildren a living picture of the legacy of what God has done for me because I have been an imbecile. I have been ridiculous. I have done dumb things and the Lord has never forsaken me and I'm gonna look you in the face and I'm gonna tell you this. You're an imbecile, but I love you. And this is totally secure and your faithfulness to your bride is a declaration for generations to come that this thing is good. Your faithfulness to your spouse is a declaration. Now, I know I'm looking in a room of many people who have experienced the heartache and the pain of divorce. I am not dumb. I understand how excruciating this is. I understand that I'm in a room with people who have made mistakes and people who have been violated because you did not want the divorce and your spouse pursued it anyways. And this is one of these moments where we have to step back and we have to look at the ideal despite that the reality. We have to look at the ideal of what God wants even though many of our lives have excruciatingly failed in this area. And I wanna look at you and we're gonna remind you of one thing. Though human relationships because of sin might be temporary, God's love for you despite your sin is permanent if you've trusted in Jesus. And so if you have failed miserably, if you have literally, you're hearing this and you're like, oh no, what did I do 10 years ago or 20 years ago? I wanna look at you and say this. You may have messed up royally. And the mess up, the pain of that, may carry on for generations. That's real. But your relationship with Jesus Christ through faith is 100% secure. If you've trusted in Jesus, that doesn't go away. Because despite our faithlessness, what is he? He is faithful, always. Will he divorce me? Doesn't even go through her brain. Number two, in reconciliation, you are secure. Men, what does the wisest man next to Jesus that has ever lived, lived do in the middle of conflict? So dudes, let's just take a note. Um, I would just like to say, if Solomon were right here, I would look at him and say, I am instructed. And he is incredibly smart. I want to just give you a few um, things to notice. Notice number one, she is not going to say a word, I believe, until chapter seven, verse 10. 
I think. It's right around there. Number two, never once does he make this about sex or sexual, even though that was the origin of the conflict. And then number three, I want you to remember that as she approaches the garden where he's gathering lilies, she has been beat up and she has been bruised and there is a, probably a very physical and noticeable discouragement in her. And so she shows up to the garden. She finds him doing exactly what she knew he would be doing. And before she can even open her mouth, he begins to speak to her. He says, you are beautiful as Terza, a capital city known, just renowned for its beauty. You are beautiful as Terza, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awesome as an army with banners. I mean, you see an organized army with banners headed out to the march. It's an incredible thing. Everybody just stops in awe. And he just stops and says, look, you, you are beautiful and lovely. And, and I just want you to know that. Verse five, turn away your eyes from me for they overwhelm me. Here, here's what, what happens. He's looking in her eyes, and throughout the entire book, your eyes are like doves. He loses himself in her eyes. Her eyes have actually been a very sexual thing. When he looks at her, he wants to give himself to her, and he says, turn your eyes away from me, because right now, this isn't about sex. This is about reconciliation. And so if you keep looking at me like that, this is like, I need to focus on the main thing here. So just look away from me, and he's going out of his way to be a man of integrity and to really make this what it's about, which is not sex, but it's about the relationship. So he says, turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. And then he starts talking. He says, your hair, it's like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. You're going to remember this language, because a few weeks ago, this is the exact language from their wedding night. Now, he's going to share with her the things that are not necessarily sexual, but he's going to basically quote from their wedding night. And here's what he says, your teeth. You're like, uh, are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. So even though you're like maybe five or 10 or 30 or 40 years old, you still have all your teeth. That's so great. Isn't that wonderful? One of who her dentist is. Your cheeks, they're like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Let me, let me tell you what he's doing by reiterating his, the poem he wrote to her on their wedding night. Look, girl, you, life has happened since then but I am just as committed to you now as I was then. You were just as beautiful to me now as you were then. And I, want you, I just want you to know, you and I are secure. Like this thing, like I get it happened, I, get, I see actually how it just kind of unraveled and this thing got bigger, the watchmen heard about it and the daughters of Jerusalem heard about it and it just made you look real bad, but I just want to stop for a moment and just say, I love you today as much as I did on our wedding night. And then he says something in chapter, or verse eight, that I'll be honest, of all the things in the book, this is the thing that kind of irks me the most. I don't totally understand all the details. And, uh, and so you've known this about Solomon. How many wives did Solomon ultimately have by the time he died? 700 wives who were queens and then 300 concubines. I love, you just said concubine in church. This is great. So... A thousand women, functionally known as his harem, okay? And here's what he says to her in verse eight. So just keep that in mind. He says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins 
without numbers. So there's a couple options right now to understand this. Number one is this could be earlier in their marriage before he developed this full thousand woman harem. Okay, that's one option. Another option of interpretation is this. Listen, love. I could I could have married any woman on the planet, and I I inherited my father's harem. Okay, and I could I could have gone tonight to any one of them. There are in this nation virgins without number. I could have married any of them. And you run down into the city afraid that I'm going to go after another woman. There is no other woman that I want. You're the one I chose. You're the one I want. You are completely secure and you're completely safe. I don't have eyes for anyone else. And if anybody could have, without accusation, had multiple sexual partners, who would it have been? The king, Solomon. And at this point, he's, we think, not necessarily going there, but then he says in verse nine, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. Verse nine, he goes on and says, the young woman, they saw her, and they called her blessed, the queens and the concubines also, and they praised her. And basically, everybody who knows you, they love you, they admire you, they are jealous of you. Now, what is, what is her insecurity in this moment? One of her main insecurities is, what will people think of me, right? What, my, my PR machine has gotten a little bit out of control right now. The watchman beat me up. I'm running around like a crazy woman with a veil at night shouting your name. The daughters of Jerusalem initially were like, you're crazy. Like, we don't know who you are. Um, you don't meet our expectations. We do not um, want to help you. And she fixed things with the daughters of Jerusalem, but you know they're chatty women. And so the whole city's gonna find out about what happened to the queen. Can you believe the king approached the queen with gentleness? He's been so good to her and she rejected him. And and so he speaks this and he says, here's what they all say about you. They all think you're amazing. Trust me, this is gonna be okay. Here's what they say, verse 10. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Here's what he's doing. He's dismantling every single insecurity that she has, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational. That's what he's doing. Number three in your notes, in repentance we are secure. What I love about reconciliation is that it reinforces the security that you already have. And what I love about Solomon in this is that he is just a smart man. He does not need her to say a word because he already knows what's in her heart. He is savvy. He is patient. He has an amazing emotional self-control because, let's be honest, in the moment of rejection, most men feel hurt. And when most men feel hurt, they respond either in anger or passivity. You choose, you pick your man, one or the other, that's likely what's gonna happen. And I'm telling you that in these moments, I'm looking at this, I'm reading his response, and I am instructed by Solomon. Because when I'm hurt, when I'm rejected, I do not typically act with this immediate self-control. He does not berate her. He walks away, clears his head, gathers the very lilies that remind him of his beauty. He gets this clarity. I am married to a lily among brambles. And then when she approaches him, he's already cleared his head. And he's like, you know what? I'm looking at my wife, beaten, bruised, rejected um, by the watchman and by her friends. I'm looking at her. And this is the moment where I already know 
her soul has failed her. I already know she has not done what I know is in her heart. And so he gives her the benefit of the doubt. And then finally she responds, and here's what she's gonna do in verse 11. She still has not said a word yet to him. And so what she's gonna do is she's gonna make sexually right what she had made wrong. Now, I'm gonna read this. It's gonna sound funny, and it means exactly what you think it means. Okay. She says... I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines, you can, you can smile, it's okay, uh, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. And here's what she is saying. She's saying, I'm going to sexually come on to him and see if he is responsive. And so she's just being very tactful, but very clear, and she's responding to him. And obviously, we're going to see what happens in the response. Because verse 12 says, she says, before I was aware... My desire, who is her desire? Say Solomon. Solomon. My desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. So here's basically what happens. She's like, she makes a, a gesture toward him, and all of a sudden, he's like, we're getting out of here now. And she's like, before I knew it, I was in a chariot, and we were off, right? And uh, people were apparently watching, and he had a driver, and he's like, let's get out of here right now. And so that's what they do. And then what happens in verse 13 is, this is funny, because when the chariot comes around, people are noticing, the daughters of Jerusalem are chit-chatting, and they say, return, return, oh Shulamite, return, return, that we might look upon you. And I, I want to just really focus on this word Shulamite for a moment. Because Shulamite either refers to one of two things. Number one, where she's from, or number two, it's the feminine version of Solomon. And so this is like Don and Donna, if you will. And so the women look at her and they say, you are his. There could have been a, a thousand other women, but this is the one that has captured his heart. This is the one. And they're, they're like little gossipers and they're like TMZ girls. Like, we just want to get a picture. Can we just see you? Yay, we want to. It's a couple made up, right? And then Solomon chimes in in verse, chapter seven, verse one, and says, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Which a dance before two armies is a pretty engaging thing to watch. And here's what he's saying. We don't have time to stop so the women can just gaze upon you and do a PR pick. We have places to go because doggone it, you and me, we're going to go make love. That's what he basically says. And then he says to her, they're in the chariot still, by the way. I just want you to remember this. He says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals, oh noble daughter. He's going to start with her feet and work all the way up to her head. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat, encircled with lilies. Now, I don't know what that means, but I do know that the lilies part is very important to him. And I want you to notice that imagery consistently comes up. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. You're dignified. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon. He looks at her, and she is refreshing by the gate of Beth Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. This might have been like a sweet schnoz. I don't know, but like, <laughs> maybe that was attractive then, I'm not sure. But your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. They're royal. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O oh loved one, with all of your delights. 
Your stature is like a palm tree. And why not? Let's talk about your breasts again. And your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. I would still talk about it. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples. And then he moves back to her mouth and says, I love kissing you and your mouth is like the best wine. Now they're still in the chariot. She finally speaks in verse 10 and she says this. His kisses, like the best wine, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for who? Me. Moment by moment, point by point, he is dismantling every piece of insecurity in her physically, emotionally, her reputation, their relationship, sexually, every single insecurity that she could bring to the table, he dismantles them. We learn in chapter, verse 12 is um, that she, before she even went to the garden, she had already planned on where she was going to take him. And so before she even went, she'd already made a plan, put it in place to make this thing right. And verse 12 says this, let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes gave, give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. She chose a place, she went and prepared it, and then she went and found him to make right what had been made wrong. But before he even engages her sexually, he speaks to her heart, he speaks to her mind, he speaks to her soul, and he dismantles every piece of insecurity. Now ladies, wouldn't you love a guy like Solomon? Don't say yes out loud because then your husband will be like, <laughs> don't say that. There's a big picture here and I wanna just start on, a, on an earthly human level and I wanna build up. Um, how you fight matters immensely because how you fight is going to determine the overall health of your relationship. It's gonna, de it's gonna determine whether or not you have the capacity of regular affection, whether you are engaged as a man, whether you are respectful as a wife, how you fight determines so much of the health of the rest of your marriage. And what we see just on, on a human level is that healthy marriages create healthy people statistically. Jacked up marriages statistically tend to create more jacked up people. And you know this, we see this, this is a part of life. And so we have on this human level that God has wired into the very institution of marriage. He is very passionate about it so that when we mess around with it negatively, it messes people up and it messes us up. And so here's what we know, that you, um, your legacy is bound up in the quality of your marriage because the people who grow up in your home, your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, the legacy of so much of the functionality that will happen in their life is the overflow of the health of your marriage. Whether you can resolve conflict, whether you can be affectionate, whether you can be engaged and be respectful and be the husband and wife that God has made you to be, what you do leaves a legacy that reverberates for generations. That's just not a human level. If you need a motivation to get your marriage back to a better place, think about all of the thousands of people within 10 generations of your one family that will come out of your union. It is unbelievable. And so we look at that on, on that level and then we just step up and we say, you know what though? My kid's picture, my friend's picture of God's love is on full display based on how I love or do not love my spouse. 
that we're creating in them a God concept. And so what we want to teach our kids, we want to teach our grandkids, our friends, and our family is this, is that God's love is covenantal, perfect, never fails, it is secure, and despite whether or not we meet his expectations, he never leaves us, forsakes us, or abandons us. And so what we do in our relationship is we stick with our spouse for better or for worse, as far as it depends on us, because in so doing, we proclaim loudly to the entire world, our God is a faithful God. And as I say that, I know many of you in this room have been divorced, divorced, or in the process of wondering if this marriage is gonna work out, and there is no intent on me right now to cast shame or embarrassment over you. Because whether or not you have been sinned against or whether or not you are in the process of sinning, sometimes we have to set some stuff aside and just let God's word and the truth of God's word linger over our lives, sink into our hearts, and embrace it because marriage is sacred and holy to God, and it's sacred and holy to God because this is one of the most practical, tangible ways that he has given to display his nature and his character. And here's what we find. We find husbands and wives who are idiots, myself included, not my wife, just me, okay? Idiots who do dumb things regularly. And guess what? It's exactly what we do to God every single day. And he looks at us and he never abandons us, forsakes us, leaves us. Even though relationally we might have some tension with God sometimes, our relationship with God, if we have trusted in Jesus, is 100% secure always. One of the most evil doctrines is, the, is this idea that you can lose your salvation. It is evil because it dismantles the very nature of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly committed to each other and perfectly committed to every single person who would trust in Jesus Christ and becomes adopted and then becomes a part of the bride of Christ. Jesus never unadopts his kids and he never forsakes his bride because he is a faithful groom. And so we step back and we just say, look, your marriage, I get, I get, I am a human married to a human. I get that this is hard and it is a fight, but it is worth it because our legacy of what we communicate to generations about God reverberates for generations. Many of you have received a terrible legacy and you want to do something different. Many of you, you have been a part of something that you have sinned and you have hurt your wife or your husband and your kids and your grandkids. And I want to say, sometimes we can't undo the past, but what we can resolve to do is honor Jesus Christ from the present forward. I have no shame or condemnation for what you have done over your past. What I want to look at you is offer this today. I want to say, today, will you follow Jesus? Because every sin you have ever committed, myself included, has been forgiven if you trusted in Jesus. And I gotta believe this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. But now, here's the deal. Now that you know what God's word says and you know how, high, how, how highly he values the institution of marriage, will you change? Will you fight for your spouse? Will you repent? Will you play the long haul? Will you play the long game? And will you figure out how to unravel the pain you have inflicted and the pain you have received and let the grace of Jesus Christ cover this relationship? Now hear me, all this sermon can do is be a catalyst, that is it. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, the word of God which guides you, the community which bears up your burdens with you, that together we could figure out a way to actually create healthier relationships. And you're single and you're like, Why, what does this matter to me? Because you know what, one day you might be married. 
And one day you are gonna have to figure out how do I show Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew word is hesed, God's covenant, faithful, unfailing love toward his bride. We get the joy to show forth that. Not only that, but here's what Song of Solomon teaches. Not only do you stick with your spouse, but you're affectionate in the process. Isn't that crazy? Like some of you, you're like, well, I didn't divorce her. Well, I didn't divorce him. And here's what we find. Throughout this book, and this, this story takes three chapters, because they're not just secured, they're affectionate. And this affection is in the bedroom and out of the bedroom. And that's one of the most beautiful things you see about this couple. And so what I want to submit to you is that we have this great, awesome, joyful privilege to show forth the faithful, covenantal love of God to our spouse, our friends, our neighbors, our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, and generations that you will never meet. May our legacy as faithful men and women reverberate. I hope when I'm dead, I don't know about you, I hope when I'm dead, my great-great-grandkids who've never met me, they're like, Grandpa Michael, whatever my name will be. <laughs> Pop, Pop Michael, I don't know. <laughs> Love Jesus. And they'll talk about my mom and dad who really changed the entire legacy for the fueling side of the family and will tell their story about how they trusted in Christ and how they set a new path and a new trajectory. And then with all my brothers, I have three older brothers, and that somehow their kids will begin to live out this legacy in multiple generations. And I want to play my part with my line in the family tree. And I know that you do too. I know that. I know that. And I gotta believe that despite how hard some of you are working right now and how hard it is, that our God is a God who sustains, who heals, and he can do anything, and I don't wanna lose faith in that. So I wanna let you know as I close this sermon out, I love you. I mean nothing other than to cast God's vision over you. And I just wanna say to you, God is a God who forgives, heals, restores, and redeems, and I'm banking on it. I am banking on it. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the communion table, as we consider just, yeah, how ridiculous we can be, how insecure we can be, how out of place we can be, we just look at Solomon and I'm amazed at his patience, I'm amazed at his encouragement, I'm amazed that he, probably because he's the wisest man who ever lived, but I'm just amazed that he got right to the heart of the issue and, and uh, Lord, I see why he devoted three out of the eight chapters to this story. God, I know that we all fail just so miserably, so bad that every one of us deserves hell. That's unbelievable, and yet Jesus took hell for us. And Jesus took the full weight of your righteous anger and wrath at our sin on his body, soul, and emotion, so we don't have to. And so God, I pray for every person in this room who has failed miserably. Lord, if they've trusted in Jesus, that you would speak over them peace and forgiveness, but God, you would also push their heart to repent. God, I, I pray for every marriage in this room. Truly, God, would you do something supernatural and protect the marriages of Village Church? Lord, would you intervene? Would you get in front of us? Would you expose us before the secrets get too deep and too, deep and too dark? Lord, would you bring a loving, shepherding, caring community around us to help us heal and be who honestly you desire and equip us to be, but God, we just need a lot of help from your word and from the Holy Spirit and from your people. But Lord, at the end of the day, our desire 
is that we could paint more beautiful and more clear and more compelling pictures of you. So would you give us that privilege and that opportunity? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen? Amen.